Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect readers and writers during the COVID pandemic and has since developed into an online hotspot for literary news, festival broadcasts, and interviews with authors at every end of the spectrum. It's no mystery that today's guest is beloved by millions of mystery fans. Samantha Downing is the author of He Started It, which became an international bestseller as soon as it was released, and My Lovely Wife, which has been optioned by Nicole Kidman's company to become a feature film. Samantha came to Mighty Mysteries this summer to talk with host Hank Philippi Ryan, who is herself an award-winning mystery author, about her latest psychological thriller, For Your Own Good. Samantha and Hank delve into the sinister backdrop of the novel's private school setting, the triangular conflicts created between the parents, teachers, and students, Samantha's fly-by-night writing process, and what she says is the key to writing a believable bad guy. So settle in and enjoy the chat as I pass the blaze torch to Hank and her creative and clever guest, Samantha Downing. It worked. It worked. I love this. Don't you love it? <laughs> when it works, Samantha Downing, welcome, welcome, welcome to A Mighty Mystery on A Mighty Blaze. I'm Hank Philippi Ryan um, with the Alexa dinging in the background, never a dull moment, which proves we are live here on A Mighty Blaze on A Mighty Mystery with our pub day guest, that a fabulous Samantha Downing with her Thank you. new book. Thank you. Here it uh, is. Oh, yay. <laughs> available on ebook and in hardcover today. Um, and audiobook. And audiobook. I would love, we should talk to you about the audiobook because that is going to be so much fun to listen to. This book is just made for cinema. We'll talk about that. Made for audiobook. We'll talk about that. But first, we will welcome you all to A Mighty Mystery here on A Mighty Blaze. I'm Hank Philippi Ryan. If you know about A Mighty Blaze, you know it's a consortium of 37 volunteers who are headed by Jenna Blum and Caroline Levitt. They started it more than a year ago to bring you wonderful books and keep us all connected during the pandemic. And we are still here. And I am so proud to be part of the Blazers. And we welcome you today, Samantha Downing, to our broadcast of A Mighty Mystery. And this is A Mighty Mystery. You're in New Orleans. How? What's it like there? Uh, it, it's very warm. It's very hot. <laughs> it's <laughs> July in New Orleans. and uh, But it's great. And thank you so much for having me. It is great to be here. Um, our pleasure to have you here. And I see so many people joining today. Here's Hannah Mary McKinnon. Is here. Hi, Samantha. Samantha, you're the best. And Carla Suto. Um, and Jim Newfield is here. And we are so welcoming to you because we are such fans of this book, For Your Own Good. Oops, which is now you can see it all the versions on, on my iPad, For Your Own Good, out today. Um, the thing, uh, Christina Powers is here and Courtney Marzilli is here. Oh, you have brought so many fans, Samantha. Welcome. Yay. <laughs> so I'm going to stop talking so you can talk. Um, the This is a thriller set in a private school. And I heard someone describe it as saying, where the parents are overbearing, the students are entitled, and the teachers are at war. 
which is fantastic. Yeah. So you tell us how much you want to tell about For Your Own Good. Okay, uh, thank you. This, um, it is about, um, uh, oh wait, <laughs> now I'm on the spot, okay. It takes place at Belmont Academy, which is a private high school in the Northeast. And Teddy Crutcher has just been named Teacher of the Year. He is um, very confident in his teaching abilities and he knows exactly what the students need to learn if everybody would just get out of his way. And uh, in, when the book starts, he has a problem with a, a student named Zach Ward who is another main character in the book. He is our student point of view in the book. And uh, Teddy is having an argument with Zach's father about a grade that Zach got. And that sort of sets up the story and the battle for Zach. And so. we can talk about, I wanna talk about the setting and the characters and the plot and how you write. But your main character, Teddy Crutcher is really one of the best characters that I've read in a long time. Um, you know, you said he had just been named Teacher of the Year and, and he loves that and he will be the first to tell you that he deserves that. Um, but the thing that he has over his students that he knows is power. He has power over his students. Um, talk a little bit about how Teddy developed and how and what you think about that power of a teacher and the vulnerability of the students. That was uh, actually what I started with when I wanted to write about a teacher is a, that teachers do have so much power over students and they have so much influence over them. And what happens if you have a teacher that is a sociopath or a psychopath and you don't know that they are until they actually do something or until they get arrested. They're happily teaching there for however many years until something happens. And so it's sort of like when you have that next door neighbor who is the nicest, quietest guy ever until they dig up 10 bodies in the backyard and you know, who knew? Nobody knew, he was the nicest guy. So I wanted to start with that and Teddy um, understands that he has power over his students and that he can actually affect their lives. He can affect their futures by giving recommendation letters or not giving recommendation letters or by messing with their GPA or giving them a grade they didn't deserve. And he uses it. So what happens when you have a teacher that is using those, his own criteria for grading his students and his own criteria for judging his students? I mean, it's interesting because that's a lot to unpack in what you're talking about because what you are describing is something that is sort of supposed to happen in school. Teachers are supposed to shepherd you and supposed to guide your career and supposed to help you and um, do your recommendation letters and help you with your grades. And when you, when, as you've done, when you move the needle into sinister and diabolical and manipulative, um, and as you say, psychopathic, um, that's when it really gets ugly. And it's, you know, in a school, teachers, um, students rely on the teachers for that. And that's why there's, you know, so many cliches about, not in your book cliches, but so many cliches in the universe about being the teacher's pet and getting on the good side of the teacher and how much that will matter. Um, and, and it shows you the power balance uh, in a school like that. 
any school. I think it does. <clears throat> and I think as the students are, aren't completely unaware of it, um, students know when a teacher has their own pets and they know how to work those angles, um, especially these kids that are pretty sophisticated and wealthy and entitled and been in around <clears throat> um, some adults that are a little questionable and put a lot of pressure on them for many years for or their whole lives. So I think that students, um, that's another angle to it is when there are teachers who have pets and students figure it out really quickly that that's that kind of teacher. There are other teachers that try to treat everyone equally and don't have pets and students figure that out pretty quickly. Yes. <laughs> so, one, yeah. of the, you know, one, of the, one of the really great things about this thriller, one of the many great things about For Your Own Good is the, the triangular structure of it, the dynamic, the conflict among teacher, parent, student, teacher, parent, student, and how that all works um, together and against each other to keep the story really moving ahead in the most darkly hilarious of ways. So when it, when you were talking about, for instance, Zach, who has learned, and the other students who have learned how to behave in order to get what they want, um, this book is full of people, parents, teachers, and students trying to get what they want. Was that part of how you thought about writing it? Oh, absolutely. They all have their own goals and they all have their own agendas. So, and that I think is very realistic. It just depends on how far those goals and agendas go. Um, everybody has something that they want and everybody has a uh, something they want to achieve. So for Zach, he just wants to get through high school and at with as little problem as possible and the best grades as possible. So he can get out and go on to college. And uh, Teddy has his own motivations and everything Teddy does is for the kids in his mind. Whether or not you agree with that is it for the reader. I don't know. He's a, he's a, self-delusional or, or lying to himself. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but it's how he sees the world. And then there are the parents who don't want their children to be an embarrassment. They want them to be successful and to go on to a good school and they don't want them to fail. And so there's just pressure coming from all angles at the kids and they have to navigate around all of it. And I love how the kids learned from the parents how to behave in certain situations, what to say to get what they want, how to be persuasive and manipulative and docile and passive if they need to, and aggressive and threatening if they need to. This is taught behavior. Yes, absolutely. And um, I wanted to uh, show that really through Zach. Um, Zach is an entitled, wealthy, white kid that you should hate, but he's impossible to hate. <laughs> so, and that's how I wanted to write him, that he he actually is a very nice guy. He's very self-aware of all of his privilege, which is part of, I think, what makes him likable, that he, he knows what he gets away with because of what he has, and he knows how to use it to his advantage, and he knows that not everybody has what he has. And he's actually a very nice, polite kid who's just really trying his best. Um, so, but it doesn't mean he always does good things. <laughs> you yeah, can, nobody's, I, nobody's completely good, right? Well, that's, an, you know, the, it's interesting that you say that because I do agree that 
one of the things that you delve into so beautifully in this book and, and in your other books, and we can talk about that too, is how nobody's, ex you know, nobody's totally good and only a few people are totally bad. And even Teddy Crutcher, who is pretty totally bad, doesn't really think he is as he is, as he says, he's just doing things for your own good, which means, you know, such a fantastic title. So was it fun to create Teddy, did did you did he come sort of already made to, in your head, or did the little pieces of his personality evolve as you wrote it? Um, I had an idea of who he would be, but the details definitely came as I wrote it. And Teddy has a very specific belief system, and the key I think to writing a character like this, somebody who's really that off is that they believe 100% and they believe it 100% of the time. They do not waver in their belief. He 100% believes what he does is for the best interest of the, of the kids. It's all for his students. And he does not doubt that for a second. Other people may doubt that, but he does not doubt that. And we, and, hear, and we hear from some of those other people as the book progresses, which is part of right. another element that makes it so sinister. You know, you almost hear the footsteps coming to him. I love, you know, one of the things that, that you're just also so talented at is dropping little hints throughout about the, a character's backstory. There's a wife who supposedly is very proud of Teddy, but no one has seen her for a while. Um, and that that is such a tempting thread. She's a great character too. Yes, Allison. Uh, she's uh, Teddy's wife. And I'll just leave it at that. I'll have to let people read that. <laughs> I mean, Kristen is saying in the, in the, in the comments, and I, and I agree with you, Kristen, it's so amazing how much thought goes into each character. I mean, I know readers read your books for the plot because the stories are fantastic, but the characters are so rich and textured and multi-layered and, and thought-provoking. Um, do, you, do you make a cast of characters as you begin the book or do you, how much do you think about who your characters are and what they want and do you write that down and make character sketches or do they evolve as they have to make decisions in the book? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't do any of that. <laughs> I just start <laughs> writing. <laughs> so. I really just start writing. So um, I have an idea of the main character. When In this case, it was Teddy. When I started writing, I knew it was going to be about a teacher. Everybody else came later and their characters. I discover the story as I write it. Um, it that's, how, that's what makes it fun for me, um, trying to think it all out in advance. Um, I just don't seem to come up with the same kind of ideas that way. Um, I come up with better ideas if I get ideas as I write. The ideas are better. So the create that's just how the creative process works for me. It does mean I have a lot of revisions. There are, it does mean sometimes entire characters get cut. Maybe it's, it was the wrong character and I, and it, or telling the story or that the, or telling a scene from one perspective as opposed to another. So there is some of that that has to happen. But I, I really enjoyed just discovering the story chapter by chapter, the same way a reader does, except I'm writing it. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful way of looking at it. I, I My editor at one point asked me if I could make an outline. Could I just make an outline of my next book? And I just laughed and I it, I just said, I can't, I can't tell you what happens in the book until it happens. 
and it doesn't happen until I write it. So I'll, I can make an outline after the book is finished and over. I'll tell you what happened. But sometimes I think it's like I'm a, I've been a reporter for 43 years and I'm out every for every assignment in search of the story, in search of what the story is. If I knew what the story was before I wrote it, it wouldn't be news. So I, I, I'm, I do the same that you do. I sit down at my computer every day and I think, oh, I wonder what's going to happen now. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and as a result, because the characters have something that they want and they're going after it, what they do might surprise me and might take me in a way that I hadn't, couldn't have planned because I, this sounds so woo you guys, I know, but and I think Samantha and I work kind of the same way. Your characters make a decision and they say things that you didn't expect. Has that happened to you? Oh, definitely, definitely. And there's, there's an old saying that I think is true that applies here. There's that old saying that says, writers write what they know. But the second part of that is, they don't know what they know until they write it. Oh, <laughs> and I think that's what's true, because I'll write something sometimes and be like, that works perfectly. I didn't even know I was that smart. <laughs> so, the, the, but it just comes out. And I think that's perfect for that character. And how did I know that? I don't know that I know that, but I wrote it. So I must know it somewhere in my brain. Don't you think that's fascinating how, how the depths of our brain that we haven't plumbed, that we haven't explored and somehow writing fiction when it's not about us, when it's about someone else allows those doors to open and mm-hmm. new thoughts to come through that we never would have thought we had. Now, Samantha, though, some of the thoughts that came through for you about Teddy, I'm not quite sure you want to own. You because- no. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, they're I- definitely not biographical. <laughs> I mean, I, thank goodness, because he is a flat out <clears throat> psychopath. I mean, mm-hmm. he, you know, if a sociopath has no idea between right and wrong, or whatever the definition is, you all tell us in the comments that a psychopath just does whatever they want that doesn't matter, uh, just getting what they want, no matter how, what they have to do to do it. I know you've got a great quote from Jillian McMillan who said she's never gonna drink another cup of coffee the same way. Again, we won't right. go there. It's not a secret in the book, however. Um, how did you decide how far he would go to I mean, let me ask you this. How did he decide how far he would go to get what he wanted? Well, if he if there was any situation where he can justify it, that it's for his students, then it doesn't matter because that's his his reason for being. It's it's his whole purpose in life is to do what's best for his students. So when he really starts going over the edge, one of his students is in trouble. So it's completely all justified in his head. So um, it, there are, there are students, he has favorites, just like he has students he doesn't like. Mm-hmm. So it does depend on which side of the fence you're on in his mind. But um, in, in his mind, that's the only justification that he needs. Um, and he would do whatever it took, really. Because it doesn't matter because he's doing the right thing for him. Interesting because, you know, we talk about this is a psychological thriller and a psychological thriller means people are, you know, using their brains and using their manipulative powers and gaslighting and deception to, to make something happen. And even if we, you know, you have to understand to be an author like, uh, like you are, you have to understand people's 
psychology and why they would do what they would do. And as you were talking, I wrote down not appreciated that Teddy, one of the one of the elements of Teddy's damage is that he doesn't feel he's appreciated enough. Do you agree? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot about class and entitlement in this book. Um, Teddy is not someone that grew up with money. He did not mm -hmm. go to a private school. And that is something that has affected him deeply now that he's working at a private school where the kids drive better cars than he has. Mm -hmm. And they live in nicer houses already. And these are still kids. And they have connections and they have money and they're already so far ahead in, in life. And he's still just a teacher. So he he there's definitely a respect angle for him there's an appreciation angle there's a these people are better than me or they think they're better than me but i have to show them that they're wrong and then there are teachers that he works with who are wealthy and they attended belmont and they've come back to teach at belmont so there's a whole lot of class differences and a whole social structure within belmont academy that he is dealing with and constantly constantly feeling or wanting to feel like he's an underdog, that he's constantly fighting against the machine. Yes, exactly. I mean, he's so bitter about his position in life and it's not his fault that this happened to him. And 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 we'll talk about Belmont because that whole microcosm of power structure that's built in, that Teddy sort of fish out of poor water comes in and tries to be a part of, I mean, anybody who has tried to uh, break into a social circle that they feel is a higher status than theirs, knows, understands from moment one that there are some rules and that there are, you know, secret messages that people say to each other, that there's a, you know, a communication that people have, there are things that you don't say or don't do or don't wear, um, that somehow you don't know the rules of. Um, and I and I love seeing him try to, you know, break the rules, change the rules, ignore the rules, and also then sort of get beaten up by the rules because of money. Because no matter what happens in this milieu, the parents have the money. Exactly. I actually heard somebody told me a story just the other day that they had a friend who was a teacher in a school like this, and you, the kids would say to her, "My my parents are going to sue you." if you make me do this. And this is something that the kids said regularly. We're going to sue you. My parents will sue you. And imagine, what a great line. I'm sorry I didn't have that in no, the book because I didn't even think of that. But imagine being that just a regular teacher and you've got these rich kids threatening to sue you every time you give them too much homework or whatever you do. I mean, you know, it's interesting because the whole, even the whole underpinnings of, of a, of a teenager saying to a teacher, I'm going to sue you. I mean, first of all, I know I'm just being a fogey, but I would never have even thought about being so sort of disrespectful to my teacher to say something like that. Um, and then it also shows you the, you know, the, the wonderful background of the students, the crazy background of the students that this is what they're hearing at home. This is how the world works. This is how life works. If you don't like it, you just sue them. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, your your students didn't have to say that because you know some of them are like that without without stating the, those words and the and the parents are essentially um, if not suing Teddy threatening all kinds of emotional and professional blackmail frankly 
if they don't if doesn't do what they want. Talk about that a little bit. Well, in a private school, I, I think, and that was one of the reasons why it was set in the private school, is that you have parents coming in and wanting their kids' grades changed, and teachers say, but no, he got the grade he deserved, and the but the parents are paying the bills. Mm-hmm. And so the parent, their salary is being paid by the parent, the, the, and the parents also donate money. In addition to paying the tuition, they're donors. So how far do you want to go to make those people mad? Is it really worth that grade? I mean, these are the kind of push pulls that have to happen in private, in my mind, happen in private schools. I, I didn't go to a school like that, but I can only imagine that's how parents would get. And do you want that donation? Well, you better give my kid an A or whatever. Because it's all about the results. It's all about getting into an Ivy League college. And however exactly. you have to, whatever you have to do to get there, it exactly. doesn't really matter because it's it's playing to the end. It's pl- it's playing to the results. I wondered, is that why? I mean, these kinds of conflicts could have taken place in a public school, but in, you t- you gave us Belmont Academy, um, which is the you know the the snootiest of the most exclusive private schools. Why did you? Is that why you did that? Um, partially, part. Part of it is uh, I come from California and the whole Northeast is sort of this exotic land in terms of like the, the old schools with the ivy covered and all the important children of important people go to these special mm-hmm. schools and their lives are perfect. You know, they're just mapped out. They go on to Harvard and then they go on to be a senator or a CEO mm-hmm. or a whatever. It was like a special club or something. So it has that kind of mystique to it. And um, I wanted to sort of pretend, see what it was like to pretend to go to a school like that, to be so privileged, your whole life is is just gravy. You, all you have to do is get the good grades and your life is set and you get the, and then you get to go to the Ivy League school and then you have all the connections in the world. And then when you don't have a life like that, it sounds so perfect. Probably when you are in that life, it's not so perfect. You you have a whole different set of problems, like parents who are so full of pressure and they that put pressure and ruin these some of these kids, as you see in the book. The parents aren't that nice either. So <laughs> the parents are very determined for their kids to do well, no matter what it takes. So, I mean, it's, it is it is interesting because. Every, everybody who reads this book, and I hope it is everyone, because for your own good, I keep showing the bottom things on my iPad here. For You hold it up, Samantha, good. For your own good is really a page turner and, and quite amazing. Um, and it is, in a way, extremely relatable because almost everyone has been a student or a parent or a teacher or multiples of the above. And there's it's very thought-provoking about what would you do? What was done when you were in school? How did this happen? But Casey Nouns is saying this sounds more realistic than you might think. So that, you know, there's a there's a lot there. And I think we've all had our high school experiences, which reminds me, I want to talk to you about that, too. But I, I do think that um, the people are relatable, their roles are relatable. But for instance, Teddy, and if I dare venture into this territory with you, Teddy isn't very likable. And I don't 
I love him. I love that I don't like him. I love that I'm fascinated by him. I love that I am captivated by not being able to wait to see what he's going to do next. But you have a skill for writing captivating, but it's not somebody you'd want to go have a glass of wine with. Talk a little right. bit about that and how you deal with that, that element. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of discussion with readers and authors on likable versus unlikable characters and whether you like it. I, I actually reject the entire notion of that argument. Um, I don't think it, a character just has to be compelling to me. Whether I want to go have dinner with them or not is irrelevant. It, if they're compelling, are they compelling enough that I want to know their story and I want to know what they're going to do next or what happens next? So when when people say I don't like unlikable characters, to me that's not what really what's happening. What's happening is that character was not compelling for that person. So if it were somebody that was compelling, then it would be a different story. Um, or maybe they might like the, that person. I don't know, but there are a lot of unlikable characters, quote unquote, people I don't want to go out to dinner with, um, in books. And if you read Gillian Flynn. You're you're already on my side of the argument. So you you Gillian Flynn's books are full of people I don't ever want to know in real life. And Gillian Flynn wrote Gone Girl for anybody who not doesn't you know sharp objects. These are not quote unquote people I want to be my friends, but I will read about them all day long. Completely so, um, agree. When I write a character, I don't think about whether they're going to be likable or unlikable. I try to just make the most compelling character possible and hopefully parts of them you can relate to you don't have to relate to all of them there just has to be something small maybe that you relate to or a, a belief that they have or a feeling that they have they can be a completely horrible person but they might still be somebody with a broken heart and everybody knows what it's like to have a broken heart so something in there there they relate to I agree. And Valerie was just saying this too, and I and I completely agree with you and, and with Valerie as well, that a character who you love to read about just means that you can understand what they're doing for them. As Valerie's saying, good or bad, they have a reason for being who they are. And if we, the reader, are smart enough, readers are smart enough to figure out what that is because you've provided that, then we're sort of on the train with them. We think, oh, you know, let me see if he's going to get away with that. Do you remember there was a there's a book called Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth. I'm sure you all have read this, where one of the main characters is an assassin who's out to kill Charles de Gaulle. Uh, it's one of the best spy thrillers ever. And the jackal is a bad guy and you love him. He's so good at what he does. And he's so debonair and so cool. Um, and so experienced and, and such a master at it that every time I read the book or see the movie, I think, ooh, maybe he'll get away with it this time. And I think, <laughs> no, I mean, first of all, A, he didn't because no, nobody shot De Gaulle. And mm -hmm. second, you don't want the bad guy to kill the good guy, but yet you kind of do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you, um, Anissa is saying, if you like every character, the book might be boring, especially in this genre. Yeah, that's another thing. Don't read thrillers. Don't read psychological suspense. Right. If you, there are plenty of wonderful genres to read if you want to love the people and root for the people. But we don't write that. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a, sort of like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if, if you read thrillers or watch thrillers, it's, this, it's the whole theory behind Dexter. 
which was such a huge TV show that he he was a terrible person. He did terrible things, but they got away with it because he killed people who were worse than he was <laughs> or that he, we perceived as being worse than he was. He had the code um, and he was a likable guy. He was he he actually was fun to be around. Dexter was like a normal human being when he wasn't killing people. So exactly. And we as readers or viewers can rationalize that. Well, yeah, those guys, those people were worse than he is. So they deserved it. There's a big element of justice that's involved, personal justice that's involved in thrillers like this. And that and that's what Teddy is all about. Personal justice. I don't want to step on the plot. And then this is one of the things that's really um, Hannah's saying, if every character in a thriller was likable, it wouldn't be a thriller or interesting or compelling. Hannah, Hannah, Hannah you're the best. <laughs> Hannah, you are the best. The queen of the dark stories, no question about it. Hannah's uh, You Will Remember Me is out now a bestseller in Canada. Um, and she's a rock star. We're so pleased that you're here today, Hannah. That's so great. Um, anyway, uh, I've now lost my train of thought totally. I was so, so enamored Personal justice. Yeah, personal justice. Thank you. Um, and that's such an element of Teddy. But so again, I was saying I don't want to step on any spoiler toes. But however much you can tell us about how Teddy decides to take his personal justice, why did you, if you can talk about this, why did you decide on that method? Or do you just not want to go there? No, I'll, I'll let the readers discover that. Okay, let the readers discover that. We'll that's let the readers discover that, um, yeah. I wonder, did you, you didn't, you said you didn't go to a private school. No. One of the things about a private school is that, and I didn't either, I went to Pike, Pike Elementary School and Pike Middle School and Pike High School in just outside Zionsville, Indiana, very, very rural very, very rural schools. And I can tell you, I had a terrible time. I, I had the worst high school you could possibly imagine. They voted me most individual. Oh, you, you don't want to be most individual. That, that's no, like, no, that, not that's most, and not in high, not in school, no. Most geekiest, most nerdy, most no, nobody's going to take you to the prom, which was true. Did you have, what was your high school experience like? Did you have a good high school experience? Um, it was okay. I, I wasn't, I wasn't popular. I was kind of an outcast. So it was, it was, I don't, I don't know that I know, not so much getting bullied just sort of didn't matter, you know, <laughs> in the big high school scheme of things. Um, and I was, I went to high school in um, Northern California and it was a fairly good, so it was about 1200 people in the whole high school four years. And um, it was okay. And um, in college, though, I was voted most likely to take over our country. <laughs> yes, well, we would vote for you for that. <laughs> uh, that just shows that you were persuasive and I don't know how I would take it over, but I, apparently I was going to invade a country and take it over. I read somewhere, did I read somewhere that um, something in, in, in For Your Own Good came from your own personal experience? Can you tell us what that was? Was that a school? Uh, there's, an, there's an anecdote in the book that I, when I was writing it, I used it because it was the first thing that came to mind. And I meant to go back and change it later and put in a different story. I didn't have a good idea for a story. And so I put in my, something that happened to me and and then my editor ended up loving it. So I was like, well, I guess I'll have to leave it in. But even she did, just doesn't know. I didn't tell her that it was real. So 
but it, there is a scene in it. I'll let readers see if they can figure it out. But it's the scene that it's seen that Zach is involved in the scene. I'll tell you that. Oh my goodness! So you have your own secret hidden into my the Easter egg. Yeah. Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. I'm going to read this again for your own good, so I can, if I can imagine what happened to Zach that might have happened. Um, to you. You know, I've read reviews of this book. Every one of them is fantastic, but many of them refer to um, that the book is words like sly and delicious and darkly funny. And I have to tell you that there are places in this book that I just burst out laughing. I mean, it is, <laughs> and how a thriller where people die can be truly funny, sardonically, wittily, cynically, sarcastically, hilariously funny. Does that, I mean, you can't plan that. You must just, that must be seamless to you. How do you, how do you do that? I know that's a silly question, but how? The, um, that probably is my own voice coming out because I'm a really sarcastic person. So I see, I, I can make fun of anything. So it, I, I actually have to be restrained in it. Um, otherwise it would just be a lot more humor and a lot less thrilling. Um, so I have to be, uh, have to dole it out <laughs> in doses. But honestly, the, they just come to me. I just make fun of a lot of things. So it, the thoughts just come to me and the one-liners end up in the book, a lot of one-liners or funny things. And sometimes I, um, sometimes I start by writing something really normal, um, uh, something, whatever, something, somebody gets up in the morning and takes a shower and pours a cup of coffee. And then I think, but this person isn't normal. So what would they do? And I try to twist it into, so they get up in the morning and instead of taking a shower, they go outside and stand in the rain. I just try to make it as different as possible, but similar so that it's more of a unique take on things. And sometimes those end up funny. Um, I don't like books that are bleak or depressing, and I don't want my thrillers to be so heavy that you're really thinking about people getting murdered. And it's there is supposed to be definitely dark humor, and I love things with dark humor, whether it's a TV show or a movie or a book. Dark humor is my thing. So, I mean, it's and it's interesting because that's really a good writing tip that in, in writing a thriller with the, with a twisty, unpredictable character, if you have them do a mundane thing in a twisty, unpredictable way, that, that gives them personality and backstory and also gives you as an author something to work with in that character. But you're so right about your one-liners. They are quite amazing. And also a way to get us to, you know, that's how you get us to connect with Teddy when he makes a wry comment about something that we kind of agree with mm -hmm. in the world, but we would never dare say it or, or do it. Speaking right. And Teddy's a good example. He has, he has a way of pouring himself a drink that is not normal. And uh, that, that became, that became, I won't, I won't give it away, but it came one of the most commented things on in the book. It's the thing I hear the most about is Teddy's celebratory drink. It was amazing. And I and I and and forgive me, but I do think of you personally. I mean, I know you and I admire you. So I do think of you writing this and think of you sitting at your computer um, chortling as that, <laughs> that line, as that line comes out. Do you ever 
take a, I mean, I know writing is hard, but do you ever take a moment where you think, ooh, that was kind of, that was kind of, that was my husband walking by, when you think that was kind of a good line? Um, sometimes, yeah, I know. I Sometimes I, I'm never sure if it's, if it's, it might just be good to me, but it might be really cheesy to other people. So, because satire, when you're dealing with satire and sarcasm, it can get cheesy really fast. So, mm -hmm. or it could be something that has already been made fun of a thousand times. So, are you looking at it in a new way? Um, like making fun of the suburbs. Everybody's made fun of the suburbs. We, it's been done for years. People have made fun of the suburbs, which is something I was doing in my first book, in my lovely wife. But are you? Are you doing it in a new way or are you just rehashing what other people have already said? So it's it's always, I'm always trying to do think about it that way. Like, have I heard this joke somewhere else before? And that's why I'm saying <laughs> is it in the back of my mind because I've heard it. No, I love that. And I do think, I love the idea that you're editing yourself along the way and, and choosing that nugget of, have I heard this before? And if, if so, I'm not going to do this, that, that. But if it's unusual and unique and new, if it's a little jewel of a new thought, then it goes in. I mean, your sense of humor comes out even in the titles of the book. I mean, My Lovely Wife, the first book, when, when she's not really that lovely, and um, a blockbuster book, and then another blockbuster, he started it about a road trip. And mm -hmm. how many of us kids in the way back of the station wagon have said, he started it. It's a perfect road trip um, t a title. And then for your own good is per is perfect with that, that layer of sarcasm um, mm -hmm. and cynicism and double and triple meaning that is in all your titles. Did they all start out to be that? Were they always named this? Yes, all three of them that I had chosen the title for. Um, uh, so, so far, I'm doing pretty good on the title. I try to take something that's common a common phrase we've all heard all three of those phrases before mm -hmm. but have it mean something else or have it twisted into something else my lovely wife could be the title for five different genres i mean it could be depending on what the cover looks like but when you put a big knife on the cover it's a thriller <laughs> so the but it doesn't sound like my lovely wife the way you're supposed to be saying um so i just try to twist it yeah, and that's how your brain works too. Is that just as you as you were saying, you take something that's ordinary and twist it into being Samantha Downing, and suddenly mm -hmm. it isn't ordinary anymore. It's a twisted, wonderful, mordant, dark thriller. And I know that um, this the book is so cinematic and so gorgeous in every way. I could the movie in my mind was running the entire time so beautifully, but I that it's true that it's going to be an HBO series. Is that still in the works? Yes, uh, it was optioned by uh, Robert Downey Jr. and his production company and Greg Berlanti, who is, he's, his production company made you on Netflix okay. and made the flight attendant on HBO Max and a bunch of the um, uh, DC comic shows that are on TV, the whole Arrow universe, he did that as well. So huge television producer, and they are supposed to do a series on HBO Max, so. Can you tell us, is there anything, is there anything that's happened recently? Do you know? I'm no, the, well, the first thing they have to do is get the script. And uh -huh. so once they have the script written, I assume they get start getting a director and casting, and I don't think anybody is joins in until there's an actual script written. So we'll see how it goes.
How did you hear about it? Did, can you tell us the moment when someone called and said, hey? Yeah, um, my film agent um, in LA who sells books to film um, said that they were interested and uh, they wanted to talk to me. So, you know, to, and have a like a creative call on what they thought could be done with it. And so we had a big call and there was a bunch of people on it and talked about things in the book and and then they wanted to option it. So it was good. <laughs> I guess it went well. When you hung up the phone, what did you do? I just, it just was like, okay, well, I hope they want it basically. I mean, because at that point there weren't any offers or anything. It was just a, it was just a conversation about the book. So. You, you didn't pour yourself a celebratory drink? Like no, no, <laughs> no, not until it was sold. So, okay. Okay. So one personal question before we close, is it true that you have a black belt in karate? Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. How I, did that yeah. I mean, I know how that happened, but where did you start? When did you start karate and why does that interest you? And are you still doing it? Um, it was years ago uh, in New Orleans. I, I had always wanted to do martial arts. I never had. So I, I, at the time I didn't have a car. It was before Katrina and um, I didn't have a car until after Katrina. And so I found a school that was close by that I could get to easily. And it was this tiny little hole in the wall karate studio. I mean, I'm talking like cement floors, no air conditioning. You didn't have to wear a uniform. It was not for trophies. It was not for ribbons. It was come in and you'll learn how to fight. And so I went in and and they were the guys were great and the the um, the man who owned it was really well known in the city and had taught like the SWAT team or something. And so I went and I started doing karate and I got I actually my last class before Katrina hit was when I got my black belt and the school was wiped out in Katrina, but we tried to continue classes afterwards in various locations once everybody was back. And I got my second degree um, at that point. And, but now I don't do it anymore. They would, there were, a, a new school never really opened. And once you learn like a specific martial art, it's really hard to go to another school. You kind of have to relearn a lot of stuff. So I didn't, but it's a, it was a lot of fun. I mean, and he was also, I also have to say the owner of the karate studio was also a voodoo priest. Oh, because this is new Orleans. You know what? I mean, like an actual real voodoo priest had been to Haiti and been inducted in the, the religion and like a real voodoo priest. So what, it was crazy. What did you think about that? Um, well, there were there were shrines in the school in my in our little cement box. There were there were shrines to various gods in the voodoo religion, and it was it was interesting. So you go, so I go and learn karate and learn a little voodoo and. You know, can't do better than that in New Orleans. <laughs> no. And there you have the full Samantha Downing experience, ladies and gentlemen. Do you feel that you've, I mean, you've sort of gotten a black belt now in writing, haven't you? I mean, this is, you've been acclaimed and a bestseller and you're writing more and you have this wonderful new career. Um, how do, What do you think about that? I don't know if anybody ever gets a black belt in, in writing because it, it doesn't get any easier. You know, I mean, I guess it maybe karate doesn't either, but it, I, to me, writing never gets any easier. Every book is actually harder than the last. So um, because you do want to challenge yourself, you want to keep it interesting, but you also want to 
give readers what they expect from them. So it seems like every, every, every book is more difficult than the last. Well, you have a black belt in our hearts, at least. <laughs> um, this book, For Your Own Good, is quite okay. quite okay. <laughs> in the right way. Although Samantha doesn't do everything the way people ordinarily do it. So the book Upside Down, meant to be, meant to be. <laughs> Happiest of pub days, Samantha. Thank you. And we're Thank so you. pleased that you could share it with us here at A Mighty Blaze. All of you who joined us today, Maxwell Gregory is such a part of this show. Oh, um, thank you, Maxwell. We're so grateful to have you here and share this with us. We, all of you out there, go get for your own good. It is for your own good. It is for your own good. Get the book for your own good. You've never heard that one before, right? That is like, <laughs> right. never heard um, Talk about a joke that's Thank been Thank you, Hannah. But love you so much. Congratulations. And thank you so much for being here today, Samantha. And thank you all, Blazers, for sharing this with us today. So keep reading, keep sharing those books, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, Herrick's End is due out May 10th, 2022, and pre-orders are available now if you're looking for your next magic-soaked, action-packed read. Tune in next week for Season 4, Episode 8, featuring Denny S. Bryce. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.